whatever happens when you're creating things is about something much bigger than any of the people involved. It is a spiritual act. It is magic. It's not great because we're great. We may be persistent <laughs> until it's great, but we can't make it great. Hey family, it's your host Luke here from LukeStory.com. This is episode 475 featuring Rick Rubin. Get your hot show notes, links, and transcripts at LukeStory.com slash creativity. Now before we dive in, I want to invite you to join me and Dr. Christiane Northrup on Friday, June 2nd for a webinar about financial sovereignty. Because over the past couple of years, three specifically, I've become increasingly skeptical about the security of our financial systems and more and more interested in investing in gold and silver. So Dr. Northrup and I decided to team up and provide some info on how we can all learn to improve our financial security in these rapidly and wildly changing times. Now this June 2nd webinar is invite only, so here's your invitation. Just visit lukestory.com slash goldensilver or click that link in your show notes to register and I'll provide some more info for this at the end of the episode. That's lukestory.com slash goldandsilver. Okay, about today's guest, who for many requires no introduction. It's likely that anyone hearing this episode has also heard the music he's produced throughout his prolific career. Rick Rubin is an American record executive and record producer with one of the best beards in the business, and if you're watching this video, you can attest to that fact. He's the co-founder, alongside former lifestylist guest Russell Simmons, of Def Jam Recordings, founder of American Recordings, and former co-president of Columbia Records. Rick helped popularize hip-hop by producing records for acts such as the Beastie Boys, Ghetto Boys, Run DMC, Public Enemy, and LL Cool J. Rick's resume is just staggering. I checked it out on Wikipedia and tried to make a bio from that to present on the show, and there was literally just too much. So I'm going to hit some highlights here. In addition to all the hip-hop stuff he's done, he's produced records for artists from a variety of other genres. Predominantly heavy metal, including Danzig, Metallica, and Slayer. Alternative rock like The Cult, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Strokes, and Weezer. Hard rock bands like Audio Slave and Aerosmith. New metal acts like Linkin Park, Rage Against the Machine, and System of a Down, and even country artists including Johnny Cash and The Chicks. Additionally, he also produced one of my all-time favorite albums, Wildflowers by Tom Petty, and the highly underrated Mick Jagger solo album, Wandering Spirit. In 2007, Rick was called the most important producer of the last 20 years by MTV, and was named on Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. So we're lucky to have him. He regularly gives out sage wisdom on creativity on his Instagram, and has a podcast on the craft of music, of which I am a huge fan, called Broken Record. And just this year, he released his first book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being, which forms much of the basis of this conversation. Additionally, He's also got an incredible and brand new podcast called Tetragrammaton, and I've listened to every single episode so far. It is just an epic show. If you want to check that out, I highly recommend the recent two-part series with Dr. Jack Cruz and Andrew Huberman. It is mind-blowing stuff. 
If you want to get in on updates for the new podcast, you can sign up at tetragrammaton.com. That's also linked in the show notes. So we recorded this episode at Rick's house in Malibu overlooking the Pacific Ocean sitting in the California sun and hadn't seen him since I left California. So it was a blast catching up with Rick and distilling his wisdom on life, creativity, and of course, music. We get into all sorts of fun in this episode, including, but not limited to, the following topics. Rick's experience practicing transcendental meditation from a young age and the various other techniques he's adopted over the years. How he dealt with two of his homes burning down and the biohacks he applied to recover from the fire he narrowly escaped. Rick's new book and why it took eight years to complete to its perfection. And why he wasn't interested in writing a book about his career in music and his beliefs around how spirit speaks to us through art. Why Rick believes everyone is a creator of something, self-doubt versus doubt in the work, and remembering that one piece of art doesn't define you as an artist. The process of refining a creative work, managing the ego in artistic expression, the critical role of presence and creativity, patience and how impatience is an argument with reality, and how awareness of the context allows for the content to flow. Addiction in the music industry and why artists tend to be more sensitive. Using nonviolent communication in creative collaboration. And how he helped transform the album Electric by the Cult. The story of Keith Richards dreaming the rift to satisfaction and various musings on some of our favorite music and so much more. This recording was actually a couple years in the making, and I gotta say it was well worth the wait. Rick's perspective on life and creativity is truly inspiring and instructive. So with that, let's get our creative juices flowing with the wisdom of Rick Rubin. Enjoy the ride, and as always, share it with some friends. All right, here we go, Rick Rubin. We're sitting out on the cliffs in Malibu, California, soaking up some of that sunshine. It's great to see you. Great to see you. So I am uh, ecstatic to ha be having the opportunity to have this conversation. It's been a long time coming. And it's funny because we've chatted about it before and, you know, we're in different cities. You're moving around all the time. I left California. And then you wrote this incredible book. And I am not 1% blowing smoke. A, I didn't even know you were working on it for all these years because you're so low-key. I never have any idea what you're doing. You're producing all these albums and writing books. And I'm like, oh, cool. So you sent me the book. You know, I'm in a creative process right now with a book of my own, and it's been so helpful. Oh, great. I mean, just, yeah. So I can't wait to dig into that. Amazing. Um, but I noticed something when we were in your house. I went into the bathroom, and you had all the blue light taped over with bread. And I was like... I rarely go into someone's house and find that they've adopted that habit. Uh, what's been your kind of health regimen lately? You got the sauna and the cold plunge, and I know you just did an interview with Jack Cruz. Yeah. And we haven't talked about that stuff in a while. What's What's your latest approach to vitality? Uh, I think it's pretty much more the same. I'm trying to think if anything new has gotten added in, but uh, all the classics, sauna, ice, red light, don't take a ton of supplements. I take some, but not a ton. Yeah. I do long, um, long barefoot walks on the beach every morning. That's my main athletic 
activity these days. Yeah, that sounds about right. Doing this Tai Chi ruler exercise that I like a lot that I learned from Paul Check. Oh, cool. That's really nice. Cool, cool. I do the um, the Source Family Starman meditation every day. Are you serious? I do. What's that consist of? It's uh, you stand in the Vitruvian Man position with your left hand up and your right hand down. And you do Breath of Fire for 108 breaths. And then do a big breath in. Exhale. Put your fingers in the moon points in the, these little spaces. And imagine the energy uh, leaving your body into the ground. You do three of those. And then I usually pray. And then I go back into the starman position and concentrate on the energy of the sun and the grounding working through my body. Something about the the arms being in the arm position creates this cross at the heart. It's almost like feels like um, the positive and negative charge. I I don't know that that's actually how it works, but it feels like something happens in this process, and I like the way it feels. That's cool. Does that have anything to do with the source family? Yeah, they. Oh, is it their thing? Father Yad, the cult leader who started the source family incredible that, documentary by the way we'll we'll put in the show notes at lukestory.com slash luke that was one of the coolest like old school la yeah it's not cult. i feel like the documentary was good but it wasn't great and we're hoping to make a great one really yeah wow and also that documentary was made before the um the way to see documentaries has become so mainstreamed that it's it's a little scene documentary so it's an opportunity to shine more light on this beautiful story that's very cool yeah i remember when i first moved to la in 89 they still had the source yeah. restaurant up on sunset you know and that was one of the only places you could get vegetarian food and yeah i all used that to stuff. eat there i you didn't did? eat there regularly but i lived close by and would go there sometimes and yeah. i just like the ambiance and the feeling there yeah then it became like a tequila swigging taco <laughs> place or something. i was like wow that's a departure um so you, you learned to meditate when you were quite young doing TM. What were you, 14 or young teens? Yeah, 14. How did that come to be? Um, something that a doctor suggested, and it it was uh, changed my life. And is that something? Very lucky. Very lucky that it happened. I mean, every kid needs that. We'd have a different world if that was happening. Is the TM specifically that technique something that you continue to dabble with or have some regularity it is i've done tm on and off since since i was 14 um usually for years at a time and then i take breaks where i learn something new did yeah. years of vipassana and uh different um practices but typically in the same the idea that there'll be a a morning session and an afternoon session or evening before dinner session yeah and now the Tai Chi is in the evening session where that used to be TM, second TM. Right, right. Um, but there's always some something going on. Have you ever uh, worked with the Joe Dispenza guided meditations? I have. Yeah. I actually just interviewed Joe Dispenza for, no for way. the new Tetragrammaton podcast. Give your new podcast a shout out. And do you know when you're going to launch it yet? 
it may be as soon as tomorrow, but maybe not. Oh, cool. Okay, so likely by the time this comes out. I imagine. Yeah, Joe's incredible guy. Yeah, he's great. He's really tapped into something with the the science and spirituality combo. Kind of, I feel like it's a great, not necessarily entry point because you can go pretty far with it, but it it will bring in left and right dominant, left and right brain dominant people, right? Yes. Because you have the science to back up the woo woo, and you have the woo woo that gives you the effects you're looking for. Yeah. Um, when when you first were going to launch that podcast, Matt Maruka was going to be a host or one of the hosts, and he interviewed me for it at Shangri-La. And then for whatever reason, it didn't come out. And I was like, oh, man, that was a really good moment. So I just put the recording out a couple years ago on oh, my great. show because we had a great chat about addiction and all this kind of stuff. Great. So I'm excited it's coming back. And I've been also binging on the Broken Record podcast, which I, I knew that you had something to do with it, but I didn't realize you did so many of the interviews. Absolutely. And they're just fascinating, and they're, you're asking the questions that I would ask musicians. So I used to play in bands and stuff, and I'm, yeah. I'm obsessed with music. Oddly, we never talk about music because we're sharing like weird memes and stuff and just have a different kind of communication, but is that something you're going to continue with as well? I think from now on everything will be in under the Tetragrammaton banner and the whole idea of starting Tetragrammaton was to talk to people that I wouldn't talk to for broken record. So, uh, but I'm sure over time I'll definitely speak to musicians again. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I like the idea of broadening the palette because I've done that for the last five years. I've pretty much interviewed musicians and now I like the idea of just talking to interesting people that yeah. I'm interested in. Yeah, what does that name mean? Tetragrammaton? Yeah. Tetragrammaton is the four symbols that are the unspeakable name for the, um, we can say the Godhead. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's a really great name. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I really, um, I mean, I've listened to a bunch of the interviews, but maybe my favorite was the three-part Iggy Pop. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. He's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, I, and I'm... There's a follow-up to be done, because when we finished that first group, we said, okay, we're going to do this again. We almost did it again the following week, but we haven't done it yet, uh, just because, okay. you know, schedules go crazy. Yeah. But we'll, we'll definitely do more. Yeah. There's so much to talk about with him. I feel like he needs more coverage. He's more iconic than the media gives him credit for almost yes. there's like he just there's not a lot of Iggy Pop media out there and he's just such an epic artist he's unbelievable yeah and original and the fact that the Stooges were you know happening at the same time in the world as the Beatles <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's crazy it's unbelievable because the Beatles seems like forever ago yeah but Iggy feels current right Totally, totally. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. That's really interesting. Yeah, such a like um, future thinking artistic endeavor. Like yeah. you hear that thing. Oh, they were ahead of their time. They were like really ahead. Really ahead. But, but I asked him. I asked him about that. Why do I think of him as a modern artist and the Beatles as something from the past? And he said because the Beatles were popular right out of the box, and nobody cared about us. So in a way by nobody caring about us, the Stooges, 
we don't have as strong of a time stamp associated with them. They're just something that's been in the air, but they didn't have a moment. Right, right. So we think of the Beatles' moment as, you know, 64 to, to 1970, I think they broke up. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess it, it seems like that when someone takes that long to really catch on, right? Yeah. It's like they have more of a lifespan, even though there's only a few albums to speak of. Yeah, but, but then all the solo albums are so incredible yeah just unbelievable character yeah lust for life is probably yeah. my all-time favorite work it's beautiful i've got a hot tip here for affordable sauna therapy you heard it right check this out if you want to burn more calories just sitting on your ass detoxify your body ease stress and unwind then listen up my friends Bond Charge is a holistic wellness brand with a huge range of evidence-based products to optimize your life big time. From blue light glasses and red light therapy to EMF management and circadian-friendly lighting, Bond Charge products help you naturally address the issues of our modern-day way of life effortlessly and with maximum impact. And my favorite new product from Bond Charge is their infrared sauna blanket. Now, I love this thing because it's portable and much more budget-friendly than a traditional sauna. Because I get messages somewhat frequently from listeners struggling to afford many of the exotic, high-tech modalities we discuss here on the show. Well, if that's you, this is definitely a great option. The sauna blanket raises your heart rate to that of physical exercise, so it actually burns calories while you relax. You can burn up to 600 calories in just one session. It's nuts. And of course, sweating also helps flush out heavy metals and other toxins, which are so prevalent in our modern world. I love the sauna blanket for road trips and quick sweat sessions at home. It heats up really fast and your head sticks out so your head doesn't get hot, so you just sweat like crazy very quickly. Plus, it's extremely low EMF, which is something I'm always looking for. If you're ready to grab one of these Bond Charge sauna blankets, here's what you do. Go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code LIFESTYLIST to save yourself a cool 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E, bondcharge.com. And again, that code is Lifestylist. When I was playing music, I was not that successful at it, which is probably why I don't do it anymore. But I had one session once where Hunt Sales was the drummer. And I was just, I mean... That's the lust for life drummer, you know. It was one. It was one of the coolest moments of that period. Yeah. And he was the drummer in David Bowie's. In Tin Machine, yeah. Yeah, Tin Machine. yeah. yeah. Um, well, I don't. I could talk to you about music all day long. You already have a bunch of podcasts about that, and I, I really. I want to talk about the the creative process you outline in the book, but there's one, actually two things in music. One is. Back in, must have been 88 or 89, I was really into the, the cult album Electric that you produced, right? Yeah. And I didn't even realize that until, I don't know, a while ago. And then I was in LA on Melrose at like Retail Slaughter, one of those indie record stores, and I found a bootleg of the cult Electric's first version. Yeah, before I worked on it. Yeah, that was all echoey, and it sounded like their previous album. Tons yeah. of reverb just drenched in an ambient sound and then electric was this really dry sort of acdc very direct not a lot of effects and killer tambourine really loud in the mix which was yeah. interesting so i've always been curious like what role did you play in just changing that sound so dramatically 
the Cult Electric was the very first rock album I ever produced. Oh, okay. And I was still living at the dorm at NYU, and we recorded it at Electric Lady, which is right down the block. It was a two-block walk from my dorm room. And, um, and I think it's the first album I... Or, first thing I ever recorded in a, in a proper recording studio. I'd already produced some hip-hop records, but in, in very uh, questionable questionable spaces. Yeah. But Electric Lady is proper. Very much so. And um, the cult had heard hip-hop records I had done and asked me to remix two songs in their mind their album was already done and they asked me to remix two songs for their album and they came from um they came from london to to new york and we went into electric lady and we started remixing the songs and i realized based on the way the songs were recorded i couldn't get the remix to do what i would want it to do so i asked them to replay them and they replayed them and then once we did that the experience was good and and I remember suggesting well we should just re-record the whole album maybe just make a different album than the one that you made yeah and they agreed wow they did. but it was it was not intentional it was funny because um, they were on Warner Brothers Records here they were on Beggar's Banquet in the UK we didn't really have the budget to do we, you know we, they had a budget to do the remix and we just carried on and made a whole new album with the remix budget. Well, <laughs> I'm sure we spent much more. But yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't even know how it actually happened. Right. But it did happen. I guess the, that's uh, so cool. The uh, restrictions weren't in place to stop, you know, crazy people from right. making crazy things. Yeah, that was that was the soundtrack to whatever year that came out, and um, I was thinking. I was actually listening to it the other day just to reflect on that when I remembered you produced it, and I. One of the best shows I ever saw was the cult on that tour with yeah. Guns N' Roses opening at the Warfield in San Francisco. Wow. I mean, just as far as rock and roll shows go, yeah. one of the best ever. Amazing. One of the most memorable. Amazing. So I think most people view you as kind of an anomaly in, in the creative world and in the music world through all of these years of... Um, you know, meditation and yoga and doing the Tai Chi and all of this stuff. And as is made abundantly clear in your book, you have a very mystical approach to the creative process. And it seems to be imbued with just a spiritual underpinning. And um, knowing you a, a bit and having spent some time with you, you really seem like you truly embody the practices like you are always anytime i've interacted with you you're the same person super chill and this was made abundantly clear to me when um i sent condolences for the house that had burned down here in malibu and i'll never forget the reply i mean i was almost like oh, is it too soon you know when someone dies it's yeah. like you know you want to just lay off and i felt no i think it's appropriate to say hey, man you know sorry for your loss kind of thing and you texted me back wild nature man <laughs> that's all you said yeah and i was like huh okay you know either he's putting on a good game face or he's really okay with that what was that experience like well for you? it's it's the reality of it happened it was out of our control our whole neighborhood burned or a lot of our neighborhood burned 
in the house, you know, all of our possessions burned, um, my library, um, so many things, so many things. Yeah. And I think the reality of, well, we can be really bummed, but it won't change anything. And let's look forward and let's not look back. And we went to Hawaii and had a great time. Wow. Do you ever think about any heirlooms or any possessions to which you had attachment? Yeah, like- uh, almost none. There, uh-huh. There's one, um, it, it does, it comes up with books sometimes where I get an idea for something and I, and I think about, oh, there's a book, this book, I have to reference this book. I have that book. I was like, <laughs> so that happens often so with books it happens often yeah. and the only other object uh that i have any emotional connection to was there was a tv evangelist named dr gene scott okay who was uh smoked a cigar was really mean and was a great teacher and i was really a fan of him he was a crazy um I think of him in, in the same way that I would think of someone like um, someone like Andy Kaufman. Like he, he was like a brilliant performance artist, happened to be a uh, TV evangelist. And I loved him, and I met someone who was his, uh, his right-hand man, and he used to wear these funny hats, all different kinds of hats. And the right hand, after he pa- after Dr. Gene Scott passed away, the right hand man gave me one of Dr. Gene Scott's favorite hats that he would wear on the oh. show. And it's kind of a, again, wouldn't mean anything to anyone else. But the fact that I had this thing, that this person that uh, I so thought so much about, uh, it felt like a special object. Right. Um, I was reflecting on that experience as we stepped out here in the lawn of this other house in which you're living here in Malibu and I thought because when that house burned down too I mean I felt bad because it was just such a unique and creative house I mean it was just it was like this English tutor with this sort of postmodern wart on it you know it's just very very cool architecture very thoughtful just minimal and zen and just beautiful just a beautiful space with great energetics so I was like ah god like that's so irreplaceable you know I walked out here and I was like, huh, it's so interesting. You know, one could say like, from one perspective, that was the best thing ever because now you're here, you have an ocean view now, you know? I mean, that house had an ocean view, but it wasn't like on the ocean, you know? And here you are and everything as well. It all works out. Uh, The stranger thing perhaps about that fire situation, which I've never known anyone to lose a house in a fire. Uh, I get a text from you a couple years ago do you have any met- where I can get some methylene blue? Yeah, recent. It was within the last year. Was it? Okay, so I was living in Texas a year yeah. then. Okay. Yeah. I said, methylene blue? Yeah, sure, Rick. Here's the link. And you're like, no, like, I need it right now. <laughs> and I didn't know exactly what was going on. But I put together a care package. You had a messenger come. And then you said, yeah, I was in a house fire. And I'm sick from that. I'm like, a house fire? I mean, what, what was the experience of having that happen again yeah, and be present uh, terrifying this yeah this time was scarier because we we're actually in the fire yeah um and it was in in my case very close to me not being here so i'm very thankful for every breath that i get to take because there was a, a moment where i thought that would not be the case 
Wow, it was that gnarly, huh? Absolutely. So it was what you were going through, just like detoxing from the smoke inhalation yeah. and things? I, I inhaled lots of smoke, and when I came out of the burning, when I got out of the burning building, it was, um, my pulse ox was 82, I think. Whoa. And it just wasn't good. It was not a good situation. <laughs> oh, my God. And did you go through any similar kind of, you know, letting go of attachment or mourning over that one? Or was it so new that you hadn't really, you know, created it as a home? Well, it was, what's interesting about that was it was our new home and we were really excited about it. So there was this sense of like fresh start in this new place. And we found this beautiful home. It used to be owned by Donald Judd, incredible artist. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, over a hundred years old, and just a, just a magical place. So we were very excited about living there. And then I think this was a, maybe the end of the first week that we moved in. Oh man! And, God. Um, unexpected. Oh my God! Wow. But again, gratitude. Yeah. We're out. You know, as long as we're safe and uh the family survives it um again it's it is ultimately just stuff it puts things into perspective yeah it reminds me of uh one of ram das's great stories about how he realized he had attachments to all these old photos of his guru and all of the you know collectibles that he had acquired over the years and then he at one point saw that attachment and went and threw them all away. Yeah. And then ended up going out and digging in the trash <laughs> for some of the photos. He's like, I wasn't quite there. He, he got a little ahead of himself. You it's know? really but, funny. Yeah, it's, it's one of my... He has so many great stories. That's that's one of them. I love, Ram Dass was probably the first spiritual teacher that I saw speak. Um, or I felt like this is my guy. You know, this he was mm-hmm. the first one where I really felt the... The connection. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh would have been the second one where I really felt like this is, this person speaks to me. Because there's so many, you know, you get to, we get to meet so many great, interesting people. And some of them are just not for us. You know, certain frequencies are right for certain people. Have you noticed that as you go through phases of just having a different taste in music or the arts with spiritual teachings and yoga that there might be a teacher that takes you to a certain level of understanding or development and then it's not that it goes flat but you just don't like you don't resonate anymore because you kind of get it and then you you find someone else who's at a different level yeah yeah I've, i've had that happen a few times and sort of felt a moment of guilt like um i should i should be sticking with this you know but it's like ah i kind of i wore it out i got everything i could and i don't think there are any rules about about this stuff like we can see what feels good and try it on and it stays interesting as long as it stays interesting yeah okay so with the book here which i always like to show the book in the videos yeah it's called the creative act a way of being and as I was saying, I'm just, first I got the audiobook, even though you had sent it to me, I got the audiobook because I just, I can digest things better that way at times. Me probably, too. Me too. Really? Pro- I prefer it. Have you noticed, I mean, you don't, you're probably not on your phone as much as I am, but I feel like social media and phones have destroyed my ability to read a physical book. Have you I noticed think, that? I think there's something to that. There's something to it. I also know that I don't, I like 
being able to close my eyes when I listen, and I can't do that when I'm reading. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I also I, uh, like to sometimes move. Like I, on my long morning walks, I always am listening to uh, either a book on tape or a podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, I tested that theory. So I was just on a retreat with my wife in Central California, and there, were, there was no cell service, which I loved. There's no cell towers around, you know, me and the EMS. Uh, but it was really interesting. Within one day, and I brought your book with me, with one day, in one day, I felt like I could start to read again. I was like, oh, shit, the old me, we're back. And so reading it has given me kind of even a, a deeper appreciation because the way that the book's written is very... It reminds me of the Tao or Zen teachings. It's like so many of the short sentences... It's very minimalist. It's not wordy, right? Which, when I write, I mean, I have to edit for days to like make it digestible. But because this book is written in such simplicity, it was a great book to re-enter into the reading because I could take one sentence and really go slowly and go back and back and back and make sure that I wasn't moving on until I had really sort of integrated the teaching. So it's been, it's been a really, it's actually good timing for me to have something that I could dig my teeth into as I start to go, you know what, I really need to read. And you can't do that when you listen to an audiobook. You know, no, you're not going to be like, rewind, rewind it's the true. whole time. It just, it's too distracting. I do rewind a lot, though, I will tell you. You I, do on audiobooks? I do, absolutely do. And I listen a little slower than normal. Uh, I usually listen at point nine, not not all the way up to one. Interesting. I listen at point nine, and then I, and I will rewind. What are you currently uh, listening to? Anything tickling your fancy right now? Let me see. What was I was listening to you? A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. It's a book about writing. Oh, cool. It's beautiful. I just started it. Cool. A friend of mine recommended it, and I'm loving it. What was the process of, of writing your book? I think you said that you'd worked on it for... Or no, Neil told me that it was four years in the making, but then I, I think I it heard was you... It eight years It was eight making. years? Yeah. It was eight years... Maybe Neil was involved in the last four. Ah, okay. But in the, it's been a long, long, <laughs> long, complicated uh, project. But it it is exactly what it's supposed to be. So whatever it took to get there is that's the way you get there. And I've heard you say that when you started talking about wanting to do a book of this nature, that some people felt that that wasn't a great idea. Yes, everyone I spoke to. <laughs> really? Yeah. It was unanimous? Pretty unanimous. Yeah, and then, both from, I met with publishers, none of whom wanted that book. They still would have would have done it, but always with this idea that they could, it seemed like that they had in mind trying to convince me along the way to make it a different book, the book that they wanted. Right. The book that they wanted that they believed everyone else wanted. Which would be presumably a book about all these stories about your musical endeavors. Yeah, yeah more of a memoir or stories about um, the people that I've worked with. But that's not what the book is at all. It's not about me, and it's not about. It's not directly about my experiences. It it is about what now, since working on the book, I've been able to distill about the experiences I've had into principles that would be helpful to someone else and it's a it's a different kind of a book and even with the same information that's in the book if i told you the circumstances that those 
principles came from, it would, it would create more distance for the reader and those principles. If I told the story as, um, Tom Petty did this. Right. Then you think, oh, Tom Petty's a genius. Of course he did that. <laughs> right. Right. You don't think about, you, you think about it as a sensational story about someone who's amazing. Right. Or Run DMC did this or, you know, whoever it is. Yeah. It changes it when an artist can look at it this way. The, the way the book is written, it invites the reader to participate in the book. It's for the reader. It's not to tell stories about other people. It's written so that the reader participates in what's happening in this book. There are things for the reader to think about. And it doesn't, and the book never tells you what to do. It invites you to think about it in a new way or in a different way or in a past way or in a future way or in a smaller way or in a bigger way yeah to change your relationship to the things that you're doing yeah well that that was one interesting part about it too it's it's not very self-referential like there's very few times where you say oh and then i was doing this or that yeah almost none yeah almost none yeah i was hoping there'd be none but the ones that are there do serve a serve a purpose would it have been boring or redundant to you to write the book that everyone else wanted it's just not interesting to me. I, I had no interest in writing that book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sense that about you. It's like, you know, you're such a renowned, iconic person in the field of music and doing all of these incredible things, but you have a certain uh, discretion and humility about you that is rare in the entertainment industry. Well, I know it's not about me. <laughs> I know that. I know it's not. And I know it's it's whatever happens when you're creating things is about something much bigger than any of the people involved. It is a spiritual act. It is magic. Um, it's not great because we're great. We may be persistent <laughs> until it's great. Yeah. But we can't make it great. We can recognize it's great, and if we recognize it's great, then we can share it. Right. Well, it's and if we are working on it and we don't recognize it's great, we got to keep working on it until we recognize it's great. That was one thing that I I really enjoyed. Have you read the book um, Bird by Bird by Annie Lamott? This writing your shitty first draft. It's kind of just you know you get all the ideas out. They suck. They're sloppy, and then it's the process of refinement. And and one of the my favorite parts of the book is where you talk about that process of like, well, there's a few different formula that you lay out, but in one sense, generally to not, in other words, don't start to edit your work until you've gotten it all out. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Because that's been a really helpful tool for me in all yes. things creative. I know some artists who start a song and then, until that song is absolutely perfect, they can't move on to another song. And sometimes that works out fine and it happens quickly, and then other times they're stuck for days, weeks, months, and they're just stuck. And we don't even know if that's a song that, that matters in the context you know, of, <laughs> right. of things. So we right. don't need to make 
every single thing we make great. The things we need to make great are the ones that we get to share. And we need to, uh, maybe need's not the right word, we get to work on lots of different things. And then the ones where we have the most support from the universe become clear. We get to make lots of things. And some of them we find almost complete themselves. And other ones, no matter what we do, they fight us. Now, we can choose to fight with them as long as we want. And we can also at some point see, well, these other five are coming so easily. This one, I think it's a good idea, but it keep, I'm not getting anywhere. Two different approaches. One would be to either get all the rest of the material that you can as far along as it can. And then come back around to the most difficult one after you have the um, momentum of making a lot of other things that, that you feel really good about then it's not, you know, you're not a quarter of a way into the project and get stuck. When you're 95% through a project and you have the 5% left, it's much less daunting. Right. It's much less... Uh, and so, so much of what the book talks about are really psychological things that we... ways that we undermine ourselves without knowing. And ways of tricking ourselves into making it easier. All right, y'all, let's take a moment to lower your stress, shall we? One of the best ways to do this is the Apollo wearable. It was developed by neuroscientists and physicians, and it utilizes a new touch therapy experience for better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. The way it works is this, through soothing, gentle waves of vibration, the Apollo wearable helps your body relax and reduces feelings of stress. You can wear it on the wrist, ankle, or as a clip attached to your clothing. And the Apollo's wearable, scientifically validated technology actively improves your health by strengthening your nervous system, helping you go from fight or flight to rest and digest. But don't be fooled by its simplicity. The science behind this technology and the results are the real deal. Check this out. Across seven completed clinical trials with 14 ongoing and real-world studies, Apollo wearable users experience this. 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety, 19% more time in deep sleep, an 11% increase in HRV or heart rate variability, and up to 25% more focus and more concentration. So you might have seen some other tracking devices on the market, but rather than tracking your health, the Apollo wearable is actually proven to improve it. As the Apollo strengthens and rebalances your autonomic nervous system, your heart rate variability, your HRV, improves, which means you're building resilience to stress, and it gets better and better the longer you use it. I've been on this thing for a couple years, and uh, it's one of my most cherished tools. So if you want to check it out, jam over to apolloneuro.com and use the code LUKESTORY15 for 15% off. That's apolloneuro.com and the code is LUKESTORY15. Well, I like that idea of getting the bulk of it done and leaving the thing you got stuck on. It, it, it feels like a leverage to me, right? Yeah, that, that momentum is. is a it's leverage. It's exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. 
yeah, it's like when when you're twenty percent in or twenty five percent in and you get stuck, it's like I'm never gonna be able to finish this. But when you're at ninety percent done and you get stuck, like I'm almost done anyway. Do you know what I mean? You yeah, realize yeah. maybe this part doesn't even need to be in it. Yeah. You get to decide. Right. You, you have more confidence. You're coming from a more confident place to, to address it. And also less attachment to the ideas that came earlier and easier to kill your babies, as they call it, right? Yeah. I, I find that with editing copy. It's like <clears throat> when I'm writing something, I'll know, ah, this is pretty wordy, but it's got to be in there. You know, it's just so juicy. And then going back and realizing there were so many words that were unnecessary. You know, I think that's been really um, instrumental for my process of reading your book is I, I think there had to have been more words in here. They were. <laughs> right? Because it's written, as I said, so succinctly, you know? It's my, like My interest was having... There's no fat left. No, no words that didn't need to be there and not one sentence that didn't need to be there. It had to... Every sentence has a purpose. And how can we get away with the least amount of information making the clearest point? Is this one of the reasons that it was such a long process to get this thing completed? No, it was a long process because I, I didn't know any of the material in the book. So the first four years was really gathering the material of the book. And then once I had all the material, I realized I had no idea what the book, the form or the structure or... Uh, the shape of the book um, but there was a part of me that felt like it was already done four years ago when like well all of the concepts are clear to me now I know what all this material is but it was you know a thousand pages in no order of just ideas oh wow you know it wasn't it wasn't from the beginning nothing was done with any form there was no structure from the beginning it was uh looking at it sometimes i would come home from the studio and something good good happened in the studio that day and i would examine is the thing that happened in the studio today applicable to someone else or is it too specific you know is it, is it a word choice that just worked or is it uh some method that we used that if you zoom out from the specifics of it is a method that might be useful to someone else so I was collecting those on a daily basis, anything that was working. And then once I had a bunch of those, I started looking back over um, choices made in the past and try to understand why they were made. Because in the moment, when making the choices in the moment, there's not a concept associated with it. It's just instinct. Yeah. So reverse engineering the instinct. Why? Yes, that worked. Why did it work? Why did that work? And trying to understand it, and then once I understood it, or when it was possible to understand. Um, once I understood it, is that something that's helpful to someone else? It's interesting that you refer to the book as writing it for the reader, right? For them to get some utility out of. But one of the things you also talk about in the book is... Yeah how important it is for artists to really create art for themselves that they love and and let go of the attachment of how it's going to be perceived or any monetary success, et cetera. Yes. And um, there was a, a David Bowie quote that I'll butcher, but something to the effect, 
toward the end of his life, someone was interviewing him about his career, and they said, do you have any regrets? And he said his, his only regret was playing to the audience. Yeah. You know, doing gigs where yes. he was like, ah, oh, I got to put in China Girl or whatever, yes. right? But it, he didn't really feel it, but he's like, yes. well, that's what they want. Yes. And I found that really interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't look at the book so much as an art project. Uh, it is, but that's its primary function from the beginning was I'm doing this to be of service to other people. And as beautiful as the language of the book could have been, if it didn't get the reaction of somebody wanting to stop reading to go make something because they're inspired, right? then the book's is of no use because I'm not interested in flying the flag of how great anything is it's, <laughs> this really has a purpose right and it was from the beginning and in the in the lineage of the books that have made me inspired you mentioned the Tao the Tao's book that inspires me and that was one of the the thoughts from the beginning was a book about creativity that in some ways is like the Tao it's not a version of the Tao it doesn't follow the Tao but the Tao invites you to participate. It changes as you change, the Tao changes. Yeah. And I wanted a book that was as open and poetic as the Tao, where as you change, the book will change. It's not so specific. It's not so... And in that openness, it allows the reader to inhabit the book. And that was, again, done on purpose. Yeah. So in a sense the book was written for you because your desire was to be of service to creators. It's true, Essentially, and it's a right. book that I wish I had. Like, when when I was 20 years old, if I would have had this book, I would have been dangerous. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I yeah. wish I would have known this. Yeah. I wish I would have known it. There's another uh, overarching theme in the book wherein and you kind of alluded to this earlier where the art is not originating in the artist it's it's a matter of them being tuned into the field like to the quantum to the cosmos whatever you want to call it there's this sort of infinite record of information and data out there floating around and and the artist isn't so much responsible for creating it because it already exists it's that tuning in and it reminded me of um a Keith Richards story where he talks about the riff for Satisfaction. I mean, maybe the most iconic rock and roll guitar riff of all time. And the story goes, according to him, that he was on tour, sleeping in a hotel room, and he dreamt that riff. Wow. You know this story? No. Yeah, he dreamt the riff, and they used to have those little cassette recorders, you know, laying around. And he woke up and hit record and went, bow, 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 and fell back asleep. And then woke up and was like, oh, what was the song? And he had it recorded. I mean, who knows if he's telling the truth. It's a great story anyway, yeah. but it kind of speaks to that that principle, you know, that it's like these ideas are out there. And um, that also to me is interesting because not only does the ego not get to take credit for a great work, but the ego doesn't beat you up for the critiques and the disappointment of how it's received either because it's not really you doing it. Exactly, exactly true. Could exactly. you could you elaborate on, you know, your perspective yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, there's two parts where antenna and there's our subconscious. And our subconscious is a store of everything we've experienced in our life. We may not remember it, 
but it's there. And when we, when we see something that's beautiful to us, something speaks to us, there's always something behind it. We may not know what it is, but it, it either reminds us of something that we've experienced. It connects to some old idea, even though it looks new when it's happening. And so there's a vast store of information in our subconscious. And if we can find ways to tap into that, which includes things like dreaming, dreaming is subconscious, or automatic writing allows our subconscious to participate. Or uh, I talk about distraction in the book, where if you do something that occupies part of your brain enough to keep yourself busy, you can free up an, another part of your creative brain that if you're try that if you're sitting focused trying to solve a problem can be harder to solve. So if I'm if I'm tasked with solving a problem, I won't sit and try to solve it. I'll go for a swim. And I'll hold it loosely. I'll think of it loosely and I'll be swimming and first I might ask talk to myself about the problem a little bit while I'm swimming and then very soon I forget focusing on my breathing, focusing on and then 20 minutes into the swim, maybe, oh, you know, like a breakthrough comes. Yeah. But it's not when I'm looking for it. So, so much of it is um, letting go of the intellectual. I think the, the making of art is, a, is not an intellectual activity. The intellect happens after. Something happens by accident and we recognize it's beautiful. We might then try to understand why it's beautiful. But the first thought isn't it's beautiful because of this. Never. Right, right. We never know why to start. The explanation is always a secondary layover. And it may be right and it may be wrong, the secondary layover. Yeah. And that speaks to everything in life is that we don't really know anything. And when we experience things, we'll have an immediate reaction to explain a possible scenario to explain something that doesn't make sense. Something happens, doesn't make sense. We'll come up with an, uh, some possible thin excuse for why that may have happened. And just as soon as we get to that point of, oh, maybe it's this, then we can let it go. And we do this all day long. Absolutely. And then later, yeah, yeah. if we were asked about what happened, we would tell, the thin excuse as what happened. We wouldn't get to, well, I don't know what happened. Some mystical thing happened. Maybe it was this. It, it stops becoming maybe it was this as soon as you move on. And it became, that's the story that's uh, stamped in us. And it's made up in the instant. In the moment when we have that story, if we would say, Let's come up with five other possibilities. We could do that at the same time, and they would all be equally valid. Mm -hmm. But if we don't do that, in the moment, one gets stamped in, and then that becomes the story of our lives. 
So we live our lives through a series of made-up stories, most of which are not true. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you ever get into the work of Byron Katie? Absolutely. I interviewed her for the podcast. You did? Oh, yeah, man. For the new podcast. I, I, I interviewed her years ago for this one. I was so nervous. It was like... It's like I was interviewing, I don't know, a celebrity or, you know what I mean? Like she is a celebrity to me, but I gained so much t to what you're speaking to there from, from her work of, you know, the intellect says this thing happened and I'm upset about it. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Well, can you really know that it's true? Who would you be without that thought? You know, I got so much out of um, that perspective that you're speaking to now, because it applies to the creative process, of course, but also i i observe just in day-to-day -day life if i get a feeling that i can't quite identify and it's uncomfortable i literally watch my mind go try to make meaning out of it and create a story because it's as if the intellect thinks if it can wrestle some logic around it that the feeling will change yeah <laughs> you know yeah when it when it often has the tendency to actually get you caught in the trap of it absolutely and the fastest way through it is actually just really feeling okay this is really uncomfortable i don't need to know why or what it means yes it's just a sensation in my body that i have to just move through you know but it's funny because i i never really applied that to the creative process as as you've done it's really well, the, a universal way, principle the, it's a universal principle and something that can the, the way you can get trapped in it is let's say you make something you don't really know what you're doing you make something it's really good you come up with a story of what you think it was, made it, it's made up, may not be. Mm -hmm. And now you live your life thinking, I know how to do this. This is how I do it. I know how to make good one. I know how to make good things. I did it that time. I know how I did it that time. And the story you have may have nothing to do with why it's good. And you get caught in these little traps of, it's, it all comes, it really comes down to, uh, any type of, I'll say, arrogance. The arrogance of thinking we know what we're doing. It gets in the way. Yeah. I think this, the safest place to start from is childlike, uh, childlike, naive freedom. We don't know anything. We hold our beliefs very softly. And see in the moment where where what's happening in the moment how does it make me feel i may want to know why and it it may be knowable and it may not be knowable and it doesn't matter <laughs> all that matters is you have this experience all i know is i like this one i like this one and now I can mentally say, yeah, but if I do this, this, and this to it, it's going to be better. And then I decide that, and I put this, this, and this on it, and I look at it, and now I have two choices now. I can either look at it with the, with the eyes of, I thought it would be better with this, this, and this. Now it has this, this, and this. Check, check, check. It's done. Or you could say, now I have, I have this thing that I liked. Now I have this new thing. Is this new thing better than the thing I liked? And very often you'll find it's not better. <laughs> but we don't, we don't, many of us don't do that. Many of us think, 
if I put more work into it, I made it better. Has nothing to do with the amount of work you put in. Has nothing to do with the time that you put into it. There's no equivalency between the more work you put in, the better it gets. Has nothing to do with it. That's that's very often demonstrated in overproduced music. That's what I sense is going on. There's just too much stuff because you can tell. Especially speaking of Guns and Roses, like that. That reminds me. You know, they had this. This EP, this live EP, the first came out. I got it. I ordered it over the mail or something when I was a teenager. And then that Appetite for Destruction came out, which is very produced, but it was done very well. And then they made a bunch of money, you know, and had this incredible success. And then went and just made these albums that were just kind of all over the place and very indulgent, right? It's just like like you let a kid loose with a an easel and a bunch of pain I just ah it's just too much you know that's like art sometimes gets bloated I guess is a way that I might frame it when there's too much intellect in it and there's just too much overthinking and overdoing and you kind of lose the essence of what it is to begin with when the essence is that feeling you describe where you're like that's it and learning to trust that Most of you guys probably know the benefits of adaptogens. These are powerful, natural substances that help our bodies manage stress and restore balance after a stressful situation. And you might also know that I love me some Shilajit. I use this stuff for detoxing heavy metals, getting loads of trace minerals into my system, and boosting focus. But when I want to add a blast of quick energy on top of that Shilajit, I know exactly what I'm reaching for. It's called Amptogen by Biocharged. Amptogen puts together both Shilajit and resveratrol, another powerful adaptogen that boosts mitochondrial output, with niacinamide and MNN for a ridiculously potent effect. This magic combination of NMN and resveratrol has been shown to boost NAD levels, which plays a crucial role in energy production in the body. And they also added B3 from niacinamide as a powerful antioxidant that supports healthy aging, or maybe even anti-aging. So with Amptogen, you get that immediate energy boost, plus you get all the long-term benefits of the adaptogens, like hormone balance, improved athletic performance and recovery, longevity, and improved cognitive function. So if you want to get on some of this Amptogen stuff, head over to biocharged.co and get yours right now. And if you use the code LUKE, you're going to save 15%. Oh, and here's a hot tip. If you want to cover all your bases, you can actually stack Amptogen with the Biocharge Resistor product, their awesome detox and gut health capsules, which is a wildly effective combo. So go to biocharge.co to get your groove on. And again, that code is Luke for 15% off. Something else you talk about in the book just briefly, but it was meaningful to me as someone who was uh, very much um, captured in addiction for the first half of my life or so. And you talk about the sensitivity, the great sensitivity that, that artists have in general, and, and you related that to the prevalence of addiction in the arts. There's so many great artists that we've lost or that are struggling with addiction. And um, it was meaningful to me because I thought, you know, I've always viewed that super sensitive part of myself is almost a detriment because I, I do feel everything so much but that's perhaps also the gift that enables me to have beautiful conversations with exactly, people that, that are exactly well received what it is, yes. so what's been your 
I don't take you as someone who's ever been like a drug guy, uh, as far as I know. What's been your experience of working with brilliant artists who are struggling with addiction? I've suffered with depression, and because of my relationship to depression, I understand the feeling associated with it. So, and and I suppose in my uh, with my issues of weight over the course of my life, I was addicted to food. So I understand it. I understand it. And I think um, I view it from a compassionate place. And I know what it's like when the things that feel so um, overwhelming to some of us and other people, it has no effect whatsoever. You know, other, it seems like other people are numb to the things that really affect us. So I understand that. I understand that feeling. I know what it's like to be uh, viewed as crazy compared to other people <laughs> because I just see it differently and I feel it differently. And things that other people can walk past can make me nauseous. Or, you know, I can't watch many movies because I, it's too emotional for me. Really? Absolutely. Do you uh, avoid violent and gory negative movies? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I have kind of a perverse relationship with that because mm-hmm. I want to feel something, yeah. you know, when it comes to like watching TV or watching yeah, movies. I want to feel anything. I'll find myself <laughs> watching things that I know are super toxic and yeah. I'll even have bad dreams and yeah. like I know that lower consciousness is like getting into my field and I don't do it a lot but sometimes I'm just like ah, I shouldn't watch this and I do and it's like there's this perverse attraction to it but there's also a price to pay because of the level of sensitivity that I hold yeah I avoid those things I can watch certain things if it's really done either artfully uh, so I think of someone like uh, Mario Bava Italian uh, horror film director from the 70s who makes these, it's almost like cartoony, cinematic cartoony. It's not, it doesn't make me feel bad. Or um, like Quentin Tarantino's last movie didn't make me feel bad because it had a camp, a camp element to yeah. it that it didn't feel, uh, but I can remember um, the last movie that really made me feel bad was, um, and it was a beautiful movie was um, Melancholia, the no, Lars von Trier movie. And I watched that, and I loved it because it was so beautiful. And I was um, in a bad mood, I would say, for two or three months after that movie. Really? It so impacted me. Wow. Could not shake the feeling. Well, I guess that that sensitivity, um, I think I heard you talk about, or maybe you wrote, maybe it's in the book, you talk about how on a sunny day you feel uplifted and on gloomy days you feel gloomy absolutely (laughs) i was like oh i noticed that about myself too moving to texas it's it's the weather changes a lot and it'll be gloomy for a few days and it's i definitely feel more i mean depressed might be overstating it but definitely not as happy as a sunny day yeah i can really it can hit me fast We we were in london for 10 days and i could not live there i couldn't imagine it so with your level of sensitivity, um, at different points you had turned to food, do you think, as a way to sort of numb or 
or satiate that part of yourself? I probably, I probably have done that. But also, I have a, a lot of uh, practices that that help keep help keep me on the straight and narrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in and I think changing my diet, like uh, at my lowest point, uh, I was a vegan, you know, for 22 years, and I think that you know, carb heavy diet, no animal protein, didn't give me the vitality that I needed. Yeah. Well, you're definitely not that anymore because. Uh, Dave gave me some of this jerky, what, or like yeah. this ribeye, <laughs> whatever that, this carnivore shit. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. Yeah. Like I immediately texted a picture to my wife. I'm like, we got to find this. Yeah, I forgot about that, that you went through the, the vegan phase. Many people do. I was a vegetarian for years and it, it wrecked my health. My teeth rotted out. I mean, I was a disaster. It's, I just, super, it's super bad. It was super bad for us. I, I know yeah. like Rich Roll really does well on it. Yeah, yeah, um, he so does. It's, it's that's the other thing. It's not one size fits all. You have to find what's right for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So another thing that is a, another one of the big themes in the book is that everyone is a creator, right? I, I loved that. And I don't know that I'd ever thought of it in that way because I think, oh, okay, you have a creative person. They create some form of art in whatever medium. But the way you framed it, at least the way I interpreted that, was that it's like every person whether they whether it manifests as something that can be shared you're actually just creating your life right and so i thought that was a really interesting way to think about that and and also kind of opens up some of the value of the book for people who aren't an artist in the classical sense not even a hobbyist but just the way you would create you know a business or a family or a home or Absolutely. anything it, i think that that's why the the subtitle is a way of being yeah it's um, and it's funny phrasing that the creative act, a way of being, the two don't really fit together well, and that was intentional. Uh, I remember when when it came, I just thought, oh, that's so cool that like the subtitle doesn't really follow the title. Seems like a mistake almost. Because one is acting and one is being. I I believe that's what it is. Uh. I believe that's what it is. And and the creative act is what I set out to write. And the way of being is what I realized it's really about. Right. You know, when I started, I didn't know that that's what it was about. But it, it became clear that making things isn't about the moment that you make it. It's about living your life in a way that when you want to make something... You have all of these tools at your disposal because of how you're living with awareness and paying attention all the time, all the time. Not there is no uh, there's no time off in this occupation, right? And the, the occupation of being of be, well, of being a creative person. Okay. But then I argue that we're all creative people, so right, we're right. all invited to participate in life this way. And I think, regardless if you're a business person or. Uh, Whatever your your role is, if you follow the principles in the book, your life will improve. It's you'll you'll be a better uh, a better husband, a better father, a better um, employee, a better boss, uh, a better chef, a better architect. Whatever it is that you're doing doesn't really matter because it really is a way to to interact in the world, to uh, 
in the, in the highest way possible. That brings to mind um, maybe one of my favorite quotes, and you're talking about the principle of presence, and you say, engage in every activity with the attention you might give to flying a plane. <laughs> That's so good, dude. Yeah. Because it, it invites us, as, as the reader, to really start to build an awareness of when we're not there. You know, so much of our time is spent just out of this moment, and the way we ascribe value to a moment oftentimes dictates the amount of attention we give to it. So we just kind of, we go through on autopilot with those things that seem to be um, meaningless or less important, and then we really hunker down and focus when it's something that, that we hold uh, higher value for, right? I yeah. thought that was a really potent lesson in just the nowness, the value of the nowness. Yeah, and whatever it is that you're doing, if you commit to it as the only thing in the world, like right now, I have no thoughts about any of the other obligations I have in life. My only, the only thing that I'm doing now is I'm here with you and I want us to go as deep into the information in the book as you want to talk about or anything else you want to talk about. Yeah. But this is what we're doing and I am here. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing else exists. Yeah. Do you think that the, um, the long-time practice of meditation has given you an edge to be able to have that capacity? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's had the, the biggest impact on my life. And again, lucky, lucky. I, it's not anything I figured out or solved. It was purely luck that allowed it to happen. And grace that allowed it to happen. Yeah, especially at that age. And also the, the grace and luck that, that you actually took an interest in it, right? Because I'm sure many people said, ah, oh, my 14-year-old, you know, whether they're a parent or a doctor or whatever... Oh yeah, you should learn meditation. It's like what? I'm trying to tell that to a, a little fourteen-year-old full of testosterone and piss and vinegar. It's like the last thing you want to do is sit and be still with yourself, you know. But I also loved the Beatles, and I knew that the Beatles meditated, and uh, that was like a, that was a good, good inspiration. Yeah, that is a that is a bit of a, a turn on there. And also, when you're you know when you're a kid, and you really don't know anything. You don't know who you are. Getting quiet, focusing on a mantra, focusing on your breath, going inside, it doesn't come naturally, yet it feels really good. It feels really good. And it can give you a sense of um, grounded confidence in who you are in a way that few other things could. I imagine vigorous exercise could do a similar thing. You know, a dedicated for, practice for some, of something yeah. physical. For those nuts that like to do that, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I would yeah. imagine it could do a similar thing. Totally, totally. Well, that's, you know, like speaking of rich role, like endurance athletes, right? They, you know, they have that flow state and they get in that zone. I've just never personally accessed it in that way. But um, I know for me... The practice of meditation has been so life-saving and life-changing because I find that I'm able to carry that presence throughout the rest of my day, right? In the beginning, it was like, okay, I put my 20 minutes in, then I'm just going to be insane the rest of the day. And then slowly started to see, oh, I could approach this like I'm flying an airplane. You know, I didn't contextualize it that way at the time, but to put it in your words, 
I find that I have a much greater capacity to just be here with Rick and hang out and have a chat because directly because of the meditation. Yes. So it's like this is a meditation right now. Absolutely. We just happen to be talking. But there's still kind of an awareness of this uh, observer witness consciousness that's observing the phenomenon of the conversation. There's someone watching me, a me watching me that's watching you and watching all of this transpire, which makes life much less painful. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, when we can remove ourselves from the drama of life and see it with some perspective instead of being trapped in it. There's a beautiful um, meditation um, where you, uh, you close your eyes and you imagine expanding, you expand your consciousness. Like if we were, if we were doing it now, we would expand our consciousness to the yard that we're sitting in. And then we would expand our consciousness to include the whole neighborhood that we're in. And then we would expand our consciousness to the whole uh, town that we're in and then maybe the state that we're in and then maybe the continent that we're on and then the whole planet and then the whole universe and we would take our time allowing ourselves to grow and um, in that uh, exercise it, it helps the, the the way I learned I learned that exercise because I'm needle phobic oh yeah and I forgot about that 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 is one that if I need to have a blood test for example or something involving a needle if I do that and if I expand my consciousness outside of myself and get to the point where I'm I feel like a cosmic being the body becomes so small and insignificant that the needle is less of an issue. All right, peep this. If you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy, and a calmer, more stable mood, then you want to be supplementing with magnesium on the daily. Here's why. About 75% of people probably you guys listening included, are magnesium deficient. And this can lead to anxiety, irritability, wax sleep quality, and low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep. Because magnesium is involved in more than 300 chemical processes inside your body. So things tend to fall apart if you don't get enough of it. So the obvious answer there is just take magnesium every day, right? Well, sort of. To experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium. And it turns out there are seven unique forms of magnesium, and you got to get all of them to receive its many benefits. And this, my friends, is why I take Magnesium Breakthrough by Bi-Optimizers. It's the only organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement that contains all seven different forms. And it's your lucky day because Bi-Optimizers, the makers of Magnesium Breakthrough, are offering some incredible bonus gifts for a limited time. Here's the madness they're up to. They're going to toss in free bottles of their powerful digestive enzymes called Masszymes and their patented probiotic P3OM along with your Magnesium Breakthrough order. Pretty generous, I must say. 
So to score all that, visit magbreakthrough.com slash Luke and enter Luke 10 to activate this exclusive limited time offer. This offer is only available at this specific link, magbreakthrough.com slash Luke. And that code again is Luke 10. You never got into the uh, the biohacks of the IVs and peptide therapy and all that stuff. I think I asked you about that one morning. You're like, what? I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. I'm, I'm blood I can get too, to the right? point now. I can get to the point now where I'll do... Um, I usually get a blood test once a year. And when I get the blood test, um, once the needle's in, I'm okay. And then after drawing the blood, then I can get the Myers cocktail. Right, right. The supplements put in. Right. Um, something you also cover, which is just such a huge issue for so many creative people, is self-doubt. And the way you frame it is, or one of the ways is, the inquiry of, are you doubting yourself or are you doubting the work? If I got that right. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who's created all sorts of different art, I think that's been my biggest Achilles heel, right? Is Really? Is, well, is associating, I mean, even doing this podcast sometimes, you know, if I'm running behind and you know, there's just things are hectic and I'm not prepared, it's like, oh, am I doing this right kind of thing. But it's, it's such a, um, I think the difference for me is if I'm identifying myself with the work, in other words, like the work is me, then I'm doubting myself and the work. But I think if I got some of what you were saying is that you know, the work is, is not you. It's representative of you. But yes. if we can identify the work as its own entity. It is. It's outside of us. Okay. It's outside of us. It's the difference between that song that I wrote is not very good versus I can't write a song. I'm no good. Yeah. That's the difference. Right. And when giving criticism, there's a difference between you're no good and hey that thing that's out here i think that could be better that's a different conversation that we <laughs> we together you could have made this thing but we together are teaming up to look at this thing and say is there anything we can do for this thing to be better let's talk about it that's very different than the thing you made's no good yeah or you're no good or you can't do that. You know? <laughs> How much uh, is language and your communication style and the way you frame it part of your success working with artists? I mean, is it have have you over time honed the craft as you just described to not ruffle feathers and egos and to well, actually get the I'm work? I'm sensitive myself, so I choose words from the sensitivity that I have of. If I was hearing this information, how would I want to hear it? How would it be helpful for me to hear it? And then I share it that way. Because there's such a, a different language in saying that piece is not good versus I think that piece could be better. Those are worlds apart in how they're received to a sensitive person. Absolutely. You know, especially when it's a personal kind of work of art where it's much harder to disassociate yourself from the art yes and we can talk about the parts of it that are that are good you know like we can say instead of saying the bridge the bridge in this song is no good i could say wow the song is so good i wonder if the bridge 
is as strong as the rest of it is. I don't know <laughs> if it is. Right. And it might not be, you know, like, who knows? Right. Sometimes the context. And then um, have you ever read Marshall Rosenberg's work of uh, nonviolent communication? Oh, I didn't recognize the author, but I'm familiar with the concept. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really beautiful. Uh, I don't know much about it, but what I know about it, like, I, I don't feel like I can. Uh, I can do it. But I know that whatever aspects of it that I can do <laughs> make it better. Yeah. If we all learn nonviolent communication, the world would be a, a peaceful place. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, it it's, you know, like the difference of saying you should do this or you shouldn't do that versus, hey, can I invite you to explore this thing or that or whatever the, you yeah. know, whatever the alternative is. Yes. But words do have such power. They're so potent. Yes. Because they're so tied in their energy, right? Every word is energy and it's it can be received well or not just based on reframing things just a little bit you know you reminded me of a trick i used to use when i was a fashion stylist i'd be dressing musicians and and actors and things and uh sometimes they would want to take charge and i didn't feel that their choices at times were great and they were doing themselves a disservice and i learned quickly that if i said oh that that dress doesn't look good on you it would not go well so i'd walk in and be like it's like a Jedi mind trick, you know, in the service of their yeah. best and highest good, right? I'd be like, oh my God, those shoes are incredible. I love those earrings. Hey, let's try this dress. It's really cool. You know, it's just yeah. like ways to circumvent the defensiveness of the human ego, essentially, you know, and to be mindful of people's sensitivities and knowing that, like, you're both going after the same goal. Like, you both want to create a moment or a, yeah, we're working, a work that... Yeah, we're working together for the highest good, always. Yeah. We're always working together for the highest good. Oh, there's another thing along the self-doubt lines that is so helpful, and that is not treating the work that you're currently engaged in as your defining moment of your entire career or life. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because yeah, I think that's it, a real pitfall. I, I think that it's the safest way to view it is whatever we're making today is essentially a diary entry. It's a representation of what we see, how we see the world the, to the best of our ability in this moment. And tomorrow it may be different and in a year, it may be different. But when it's not uncommon for artists to think, this thing I'm making is the most important thing in the world. This is going to define me forever. And it's just not true. It's just not true. And it's not helpful to think that. Yeah. Well, Rick, it's, it's getting chilly out here. <laughs> Um, but I want to I want to take a moment to say, th hey, thank you for making the time. I know you're only here for a couple of days and you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate you dropping in with me. And um, I've always wanted to thank you, and this is really from my heart, for what you did for Johnny Cash and the epic contribution to American culture and American music. Like... It would have done the world such a disservice had those works you did with him not been created. Yeah. Just so powerful and so meaningful and timeless. It's, it's truly a case of the universe allowing that to happen. Um, I feel blessed to have had him in my life and to get to spend time with him. And it was 
beautiful experience. And I feel so lucky that I got to be there. You know, I got to be part of it. Yeah. I mean, just that music is so special. And with, you know, with an artist that's around that long, there's so many iterations and so many different producers and labels trying to rebrand them and and all that. I really think that the the collection of work you did with him was the best he ever did. Wow. I mean, just, it's just the best. Which I thought of the other day because I was driving through Bakersfield and I was like, I got to listen to Merle Haggard. I put on Merle Haggard and just went through the library and there's all kinds of classic stuff where the recordings were great, but later in his life he did kind of a minimal acoustic jam like that yeah. it was okay you know yeah. i had the thought i was like man i wish rick could have worked with merle haggard Me too, too. <laughs> right and, and done the same incredible. kind of the same sort of approach you know incredible. or whatever his version of that would have been yeah that's one of the best things that came from the um the johnny cash experience was that other grown-up artists felt like oh maybe i can still do this maybe you know because it's very much of a young man's game music business and when i met johnny he he believed that not only that his best work was behind him but his best work was long long behind him and he'd already been dropped by two record companies he went from being the most successful person on columbia records the biggest record company in the world to being dropped by that label. Oh, God. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my and then God. he was on another label, and he got dropped from that label, and he thought he was done. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting, too, when an artist, you know, in the, in the music industry, at least, is around for that long, and because it is a business, and you have this whole machine on the business side of it, that is inclined to follow trends right and you see you see this a lot with country artists those you know there's like their 80s albums with the big reverb drums and you're like ah you know it's from the 80s and it sounds like shit at least to me yeah but it's it's got to be difficult for an artist to be around that long and have you know all of this influence from the outside wanting them to kind of stay with the times when they're a timeless artist yes you know, it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Yes. You see so that, many that of them. That was the case with um, Bill Withers. Like, Bill Withers was such a specific artist, so interesting. And he was, in many ways, like Bob Dylan. Like, he wrote these classic, essentially folk songs. And because of the color of his skin... This the the people at the record companies thought he's supposed to do this urban thing. Oh yeah, and and these people, you know, the people at the record company also shared his skin color. It's not like this was a, a white and black thing. This was just like, oh, we got to keep up. You know, we got to yeah. keep up with what's going on. Yeah, and it destroyed him, and he ended up. Um, Stopped making music at the at the peak of his. Really? Uh, oh, yes. I didn't know that. He stopped making music, and huh. he just—it's like the system broke him. Oh man! It's one of the greatest to ever do it. Yeah, I agree. That happened um, a bit with the blues too. Like in the late '60s, Chess would start putting out these albums where they get like 
a young white rock band, like a psychedelic band. Yeah. There's one called Electric Mud, yeah, Muddy yeah. Waters one. I know it. It's like interesting. It's a pretty cool one. Have you ever heard the Howling Wolf one? No. Dude, I had it on vinyl. And you, can, you can't find it on CD or MP3, but you can find it on YouTube, like a long play of it, right? Yeah. It's called This Is Howling Wolf's New Album. He I doesn't it. like it. Yes. Uh, but he didn't like his electric yeah, guitar. Yeah, he didn't he like his electric either. guitar yeah. first either. That's yeah. it. And it's like, it's like better than Led Zeppelin. It's yeah. like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix backing Howling Wolf. And it's one of the best albums to me of all time it's really cool but it's usually a failure when that is attempted you know it's yes. rare that when they try to take a you know a classic iconic artist and like bring them up to the times it's like eh, it rarely comes off as authentic. sometimes an artist will you know start one way and then decide to change and it really works and and right. the best artists i mean talking about the beatles they always changed you know, they may have two albums that are similar, but then by the time they get to the th whatever third one is or the fifth, it's like a whole new band. It keeps becoming a whole new band. Yeah. You know, when Radiohead made Kid A, it felt like a different band right. than the band that made the bands in OK Computer. That's true. You know, another band that is, is very much um, in that vein is Wilco. Yeah. Like, they start out this really great kind of Graham Parsons-esque mm -hmm. alt-country band and then get a little more electrified on being there and then just go, we're doing our own thing. And remained cool and innovative and creative, you know? That, they were a band that didn't lose me even when they went into genres that I wasn't particularly fond of. I still liked the way they did it. Yeah, I, that's a good point when people are successful in departures. Uh, all right, final question for you, my friend Rick yeah, Rubin. Who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you'd like to share with us? Hmm. Well, the uh, Lao Tzu, the Tao, is, is a big one. Um, teachers or teachings that have inspired me. The Tao. Because of, because of the role that TM has played in my life, I would... I would have to say Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and I and I suppose I would I would say that the um, the fact that I listened to the Beatles when I listened to them from a very small age, um, probably three years old. I think the fact that from such a young age I connected with such a reservoir of uh, musicality that's like from another dimension. I don't know that I would be me without without that. It's certainly my biggest influence in music. Amen. That was well well thought out. <laughs> Just looking for different areas. It's yeah, not obvious. Yeah. It's not obvious. Yeah, that's good though. I I relate to the to the Beatles thing, hearing those things. I, I had similar experiences. For me, I think it was Jimi Hendrix. You know, when I was a little kid, just I don't. I would have been a different person had I not heard that really loud yeah. on a turntable. Just like what is? It's like an alien visited. You know, and it just you're never the same after that kind of the influence of really inspired art like that. Cool, man. Well, thank yeah. you for talking thank to me. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm Absolutely. glad we finally got this done. Always nice to see you. Thanks for joining me on one of my very favorite episodes to date, and I hope this one left you as inspired as it did me. 
And remember, if you want to catch more of Rick's magic, sign up for updates for his new incredible podcast at tetragrammaton.com. And I'll be back in your brain this Friday with Ask Me Anything episode number 476. Then next Tuesday, we drop number 477, The Truth About Infrared Sauna Therapy, The Complete Guide to Detox and Healing with Connie Zach of Sunlight and Saunas. And I remind you to make sure to click subscribe or follow on your podcast app to catch all of the upcoming episode drops. I mentioned my upcoming June 2nd webinar with Dr. Christiane Northrup in the intro. Well, in case you missed the memo, here's what it's about. The financial systems we've all grown accustomed to using are becoming more volatile than ever. So I've become increasingly interested in learning how to navigate finances over the past three years, and I've set out to educate myself and, of course, share what I learn along the way. Because the more we understand about this shifting economy, the better we can protect and grow our wealth, even in these uncertain times. The fact is that fiat currencies like the one we use in the U.S. are highly unstable, so personally, I'm always looking for alternative ways to save and become financially secure. And I've dabbled in crypto, and while I think it's promising and interesting, precious metals like gold and silver still feel like a more stable currency to me. And I like the idea of a tangible, real money. I guess you can call me old-fashioned. That said, I've always found it a bit daunting to learn the ropes of buying gold and silver. For some reason, it's always felt sort of complicated and overwhelming. And I've had questions about it, like how does this actually work? Where and how do you buy it? What do you do with it once you buy it? And so on. Well, these questions and more were answered when I interviewed Dr. Christiane Northrup last year on episode 435. By the way, it's a great one if you want to go back and check it out. And she basically got me hip to what she and her team are up to in this space and really got the ball rolling for me. I've been incrementally buying and squirreling away little bits of gold and silver ever since, and it turns out it's pretty simple if you have a plan and a basic understanding of how it works. So if you want to learn about how and why our financial system is rigged against us and how to fortify yourself and your financial future, I highly encourage that you join us as Dr. Christiane Northrup and I host a free webinar on Zoom to talk about real money. We'll be going live at noon central. That's 1 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Pacific again on Friday, June 2nd. To get yourself on the list, visit lukestory.com slash gold and silver. Because I think now is the perfect time to take our power back from these greedy banks and educate ourselves on what's coming and start stacking up some real money right now. And I also want to encourage you to register even if you can't attend the live online event so I can send you the replay afterward for free. Again, visit lukestory.com slash gold and silver to learn more or just click that link in the show notes and we'll see you live on Zoom on June 2nd, 2023.